Okay, so with that out of the way, why don't we get started? Okay, first of all, the origin of this class. The origin of this class is frustration of a preacher who doesn't have enough time to tell people all the things that he really wants to tell them. Okay? You get up there and you preach, and you I'm talking about me. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm frustrated that I, I, can't just, I just can't say all the things that I'd like to say. And it's really important stuff. And it's really helpful stuff. So I decided to put a class together. You only have a certain amount of time when you're, when you're up there in the, in the pulpit. And um, you know, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15 on the, at, the, at, the, at the latest. Some priests go longer. I don't like to. Um, I knew one parishioner in a past parish. And he priest went too long. You take his watch and <laughs> hold it up like that. So there's a lot of things that I'd like to say that I don't get a chance to say, so put them together in these little classes, okay? And there will be more of these classes coming in future years. Uh, but St. Paul, one of the most important subjects that we, can, that we can possibly talk about. Now, when we talk about the uh, scriptures, okay, first of all, I always like to begin by reminding you why we study at all. Why do we study? Why do we study? There's one reason why we study. Because knowledge leads to love. You cannot love what you do not know. And knowledge leads to love. Hopefully learning about this is going to make you a better Christian. That's what it's all about. Okay? You're not going to get any course credit for this. It's not transferable to any major university or seminary. In my opinion, it should be. Okay? <laughs> because I learned this the hard way. There's lots of ways to study scripture, okay? Um, in the seminary, we learn literary, we learn historical, we learn many other things. Take the literary approach. There's lots of ways to study scripture, okay? Um, you can analyze the message by looking at the structure of the arguments. It doesn't get anybody's heart racing, but it's one way that you can learn about Scripture. You can look at where the core of the message is, and you can see how there's parallels that work their way to that core and then work their way out. Um, it's one way of looking at it. Another way you could look at it is historical. Okay, it's partly why I put this little book together, so I don't have to talk about the historical reasons. You could talk about what did Saint, why, why did St. Paul write his letters? When did he write his letters? Um, uh, who was he writing to? It's helpful, okay? But it's kind of academic and it's kind of cerebral. What I want to do is I want to talk about what's called biblical thematics. That's what this class is going to be. It's going to be biblical thematics. And biblical thematics is an approach to studying Scripture by which you look at the whole writing and you ask yourself, what are the major themes that show up in this writing? And they discuss those themes. And that's what you'll look at your, your syllabus. But I basically got them all divided up into major themes, and that's what I'm going to do. Uh, hope, love, uh, suffering, surrender, faith, uh, service, and our response to God's love as a Christian. Okay, those, are, those are major themes. Why did I write those out as themes? Because those are the main themes that show up in his letters. Okay? Now, the, the bad thing about biblical thematics is that it, it doesn't cover everything. Right? There are some things I, I, I leave out. I don't want to leave you with the impression that just because I covered the theme means that I covered the whole letter. 
It would be a gross oversimplification to say otherwise. But the good thing about it um, is that it helps you to put this into practice as a Christian. And as far as I'm concerned, if it doesn't amount to that, why bother? Okay, so biblical thematics, that's what we're going to do. Another thing we need to understand about Paul, you hear these letters of Paul read at Mass, right? And you walk away thinking, what was that all about? Don't you? Lots of times. What was that all about? I've heard that before, but what does that mean? Let's begin by confessing one thing up front. St. Paul is difficult. Okay, there's two reasons why St. Paul is difficult. First reason why St. Paul is difficult is the style of the writing that you're hearing. You're getting a letter. You're getting half of a conversation. It's like listening to half of a... You know how some people will yap on the cell phone? It's awfully hard to pay attention. I mean, you don't know what the other half of the conversation is. That's what makes St. Paul hard. Okay, it's like listening... It's like reading somebody else's mail, literally. The letter was written to the Thessalonians. The letter was written to the Corinthians. And that makes it difficult. I'm going to get into a little bit of that. We're going to talk about you know, what they were writing about and things like that. Second reason why St. Paul is difficult is it's just in the nature of what he's writing, Paul writes theology. He doesn't tell stories. There aren't parables. Okay? There aren't narratives. He's writing theology, and and that makes it difficult. Okay? So the more I look at St. Paul, the more I realize I could have had seven or eight conferences on one letter. There's so much in each letter. And when you try to take in all of St. Paul, you know, it's like trying to take in all of the Swiss Alps. You go to the Swiss Alps, and the last thing that you want is a detailed cartographic sketch of every last glacier and every last valley and every last ravine. It's just too much information. What you want to do is stand in one place and look around and survey what you're seeing and have somebody maybe narrate a little bit about what you're looking at. That's what I'm going to do. Okay, That's what this class is. It's going to be biblical thematics. And, uh, um, and we're going to focus on these seven major epistles. Now, you'll notice I don't talk about all the letters of Paul in this class. Okay? I'm talking about one and two Thessalonians, one and two Corinthians, Galatians, Romans, Ephesians, and Philippians. Okay? We're only going to talk about eight letters. Paul wrote 13 letters. Why am I leaving out the other ones? I'm leaving out the other ones because I think they're easier to understand. Uh, Some of the other letters that I'm not talking about are letters written to an individual. And upon reading them, their meaning is a lot clearer. These are also the most important letters. So I'm trying to talk about the biggest and the most important letters. Okay, from a biblical thematic point of view. That's what we're doing here for the next next, uh, eight weeks. Okay? Now, let's stop and consider one more big, big thing about St. Paul before we go anywhere else. St. Paul is a spiritual author. Here's the value of St. Paul. St. Paul asks the question, what do I need to do to be a follower of Jesus Christ? St. Paul is a spiritual author. There aren't a lot of strictly spiritual authors in the New Testament, believe it or not. Okay, there's evangelists, there's historians, there's poets, um, there's many, many people. But a spiritual author, he wears his heart on his sleeve. 
Okay? Paul's a romantic. Paul's a risk taker. And he's more so probably than, uh, than any other, more than any other author in the Bible. And let me give you, just I'm going to cut right to the chase. I'm going to give you the heart of the message of all of St. Paul. It's found in his letter to the Galatians. In fact, it's Galatians 2.20. So I'm cutting right to the heart of the message. You want to know what the heart of the message of all the letters of St. Paul is? It's this. It is no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. That's the message of a mystic. Okay. I'm just going to give this That's the message of a mystic. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Um, And uh, what exactly does that mean? Paul talks about the things that we all struggle with. Things that are going on in your mind, things that are going on in your heart. Like, what happened? Am I a bad person because I'm tempted? Okay? Anybody who follows this path, they, they, they ask that question. What about the times that I fail? Christ. I've got all these professions of faith, and I sing all these hymns, and I do all these genuflections, and I fall flat on my face. What does that make me? Paul talks about that. Okay? Paul says, I've got two laws warring against one another in my mind. Sound familiar? I do the evil that I don't want to do, and I don't do the good that I know that I'm supposed to do. God, come and help me. One of my favorite lines of all, Paul says, after I've preached to others... I'm afraid I myself am going to be lost. Have ever felt like that before? You probably never had to stand up and give a homily and you've still felt like that before. Okay? Believe me. Paul speaks to the heart. So we're going to try to uncover all the stuff that, 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 that Paul's going to talk about. I hope it'll bring Paul alive. It'll take a little bit of work on your part. Don't expect that just by attending these classes, you're going to... Uh, have a perfect understanding of all the scriptures that you hear at Mass. But if you attend these classes and you put a little bit of study into it, you will. If you put a little bit of study into it and you hear Corinthians and you think, I know what he was writing about to the Corinthians, I know what the message was, I know what the theme was, and then you hear the reading read at Mass, you can give up and give the homily. I might even set aside and step aside and let you do it. No, can't do that. But you, you, you're going to know what's, what's, what's going on. Okay. Now, before I start anything else, there's some objections to St. Paul that I've got to address. Who's ever heard the objection to St. Paul uh, that Paul changed the message of Christ? Oh, I'm so edified. Thank goodness. But so as not to let you walk about theologically and biblically naive in a dangerous world. Let me introduce you to this idea so that when it comes up you can have a counterpoint. Okay? There are many people who claim that Christianity was really founded by Paul. And that what we have in Jesus is this innocent, good-hearted, humble carpenter with a message, and along comes Paul who turns him into God from God and light from light. Okay? That's a claim that people make. I want to tell you why it's not true. Okay? Um, a couple of reasons why this is not true. Uh, the first reason why we need to say this is not true is let's not forget that Paul is a contemporary of all the people who knew Christ in this life. Paul was the oldest 
Paul wrote the oldest letters in the New Testament. The very oldest first things ever penned in the New Testament are the letters of Paul. And when Paul preached, he preached a a mere years after after Christ had died and, and, and ascended into heaven to people who had known him on this earth. And they all welcomed Paul as an equal. They all recognized Paul as one of them. All the apostles recognized Paul as one of them. Okay? Um, so when people like to bring this up, uh, just you know, keep in mind, it doesn't pass the historical litmus test. Because uh, Paul, while saying all of these things, was entirely accepted by the original audience. In other words, they recognized he was speaking what Jesus himself taught. Okay, so don't let anybody try to throw you off and suggest that, uh, that Paul was teaching something else. But, you know, a mere 20 years after the death of Christ, Paul, who himself was a rabbi, refers to Jesus Christ as Theos, God, the Greek word for God. A rabbi knew what that meant. Okay. Paul knew what that meant. And all of his, all of his original audience knew what that meant and accepted it and, and had no trouble with it. So, no, anyway, people might try to throw you off. Don't let them. All right? Now, um, let's take a little look at the life of St. Paul. Who was this guy? Okay? Well, we've got some internal evidence from the Scriptures to tell us a little bit about who Paul was. Uh, we don't know the date of his birth, but we can figure out a few things. Okay? Uh, he was present at the death of St. Stephen the Martyr. Now, we know when St. Stephen the Martyr was stoned to death outside the city of Jerusalem. It was 36 A.D. Okay? Now, Paul is described in the Acts of the Apostles, standing there giving his witness to the execution of St. Stephen while people threw their cloaks at his feet. And Paul is described in, 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 in Greek as a Neoneus. Neoneus is a Greek word for young man. Okay? Um, probably somebody who's under 30. All right? 36 A.D. Now, in his, letter to, in his letter to Philemon, dated about 62 A.D., Paul refers to himself as an old man. The Greek word is presbytes, and don't take any offense, that means somebody over 50. Right? That's what the word old man meant. Okay? So what we get from this is we get the image of a man who's about 10 years younger than Christ. All right? Now, Paul was born in Tarsus in Cilicia. It's, uh, it's, today it's Turkey, Asia Minor. All right? In 66 BC, uh, there was a Roman general named Pompey who made Tarsus the capital of a Roman province, and all the citizens of Tarsus became honorary Roman citizens. Now, that ends up factoring big into the life of Paul, the fact that he's a Roman citizen. He calls himself a Roman citizen. doesn't mean he was born in Rome. It's that his hometown was given honorary status so that all the people in the town could call themselves Roman citizens. Roman citizens had a few key advantages. Number one, they couldn't be crucified. Okay, Paul had his head lopped off. They would have crucified him if they could, but they had a law against that. Roman citizens couldn't be crucified. Number two, heightened prestige all throughout the empire. You can stand up and say, I'm a Roman citizen. Uh, and it, it just got you a little bit better treatment. Okay? Number three, Roman citizens had the right to a trial by the emperor. Paul uses that to his advantage too. He gets, uh, he gets imprisoned and he gets taken uh, to trial 
in Caesarea Philippi, I'm sorry, in Caesarea uh, Maritima in Israel, and he steps up before the, 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 the Roman procurator and says, I'm a Roman citizen. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not subjecting myself to this trial. You send me to Rome. And they do. And they send him to Rome and he goes to, goes to prison and he writes letters from prison. He preaches from prison. Paul was the man. Okay? Um, okay, Paul's original name was Saul. All right? After his conversion in Acts 13.9, he's called Paul. Uh, a lot of people think that God changed his name. God gave Paul a new name. Is Actually, it was a common practice for Jewish people to also have a Roman name. So Paul would have gone by Saul or, or Paul, depending on who he was talking to. Okay? Um, uh, he was a tent maker by trade. Uh, he made a waterproof cloth called Cilicium. Right? It came from the city of Cilicia. And this waterproof cloth that was used for making uh, Bible-age raincoats and tents and things like that. Some kind of waterproof cloth. Um, nobody's really sure what Paul looked like, but we've got a pretty good clue. Okay? Now, Paul himself gives a comment on his looks. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he is, uh, in appearance, lowly among men. Okay? Uh, and then we find out in another little interesting ancient document called the Acts of Paul and Thecla, a little description of exactly what lowly among men means. Okay? And it says that Paul was a man short of stature, with a bald head and crooked legs, a good state of health, with eyebrows meeting, a nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness. Now it's probably likely that such a description was observed, not invented. Right? A, a bow-legged, bald-haired, unibrow guy with a crook nose. Chances are that was what he really looked like. Okay? So that was St. Paul. Let's not forget, Paul's a Pharisee. You know how the Pharisees get derided in the New Testament? The Pharisees, you, woe to you Pharisees, Jesus says. I could go on and on about Pharisees. It might shock you to know that Jesus himself was a Pharisee. Blessed Mother was a Pharisee. St. Joseph was also a Pharisee. Pharisee doesn't mean bad person. What it just meant was someone who literally strictly observes the law, as opposed to other Jewish parties. That might surprise you, but um, Pharisee doesn't always have to mean bad. It was just an, a strict observer of the Jewish law. Uh, he did his biblical studies in Jerusalem under Rab, Rabbi Gamaliel. That name sound familiar? He shows up in the scriptures uh, as the one who suggests that they shouldn't scourge and beat the apostles. Because if they do, and it turns out that they're doing God's work, they're just going to be fighting against God himself. Gamaliel, who's a lead rabbi. So studying under Gamaliel, it was kind of like the rabbinic equivalent of going to Rabbi Harvard. Okay, So he was a very, very educated man, spoke four languages, Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Latin. Right. Now, turning point of St. Paul's life. His conversion on the road to Damascus. Everybody's heard about this, right? You heard about St. Paul getting knocked off his horse? Do you know that's not in the scriptures? It's not in the scriptures. It's in a painting by Caravaggio in a church in Rome called the Chapel of Santa Maria del Popolo. Caravaggio has a picture of St. Paul getting knocked off a horse, but horse isn't in the scriptures. But he was converted on the road to Damascus. Something happened to Paul. He was going to Damascus with a bill of letters in his hand saying to all the rabbis and to all the 
religious leaders that they were supposed to turn over the Christians to his custody. I don't know on what authority he was acting, but that's what he was doing. He was rounding them up, and he was taking them off to be tried and likely executed like St. Stephen. Okay? A zealous defender of, of, of Judaism, he goes to Damascus. Why is he going to Damascus? Damascus in Syria? He's going to Damascus because it was a center of religious tolerance. It was... I don't know, a, a, a place where people just traditionally look to the other way, to dissenters and that kind of thing. So where did the Christians end up flocking in times of persecution? Damascus. Where does Paul go to get the people? He goes to the target. He goes to Damascus. Something hits him on the road to Damascus. And you know what happened. He had a bright light from heaven, for which he was blinded, knocks him to the ground, and he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me. A word not to be taken lightly or overlooked. Not, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my people? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute Christians? Saul, why do you persecute me? And what did Jesus, what what does Paul end up telling us later in in his letters? The church is the body of Christ. I could talk, I could go off about baptism right here. And what baptism does makes you one in Christ's own being. That's our ticket to heaven, by the way. right? It all all begins with with, with baptism. And Jesus identifies personally with his church. Paul's the one who first learns that. And he has this this amazing conversion experience. Now, another thing we need to address here, Paul was not one of the original twelve apostles. A lot of people are like, hey, I looked at the list of the twelve apostles, Peter and Andrew, James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, Simon and Jude. I don't see the name Paul in there anywhere. How's Paul an apostle? Okay, he wasn't one of the twelve. I'll confess right out right up from the beginning. But being an apostle does not necessarily mean being one of the twelve. What's an apostle? Okay? The word means one who's sent. Who did the sending? Jesus does the sending. A witness to Jesus' resurrection who's personally commissioned by Jesus to go out and and, and preach and teach in his name. That's an apostle. we got the original twelve. We also have Matthias, right? Who replaced Judas Iscariot. We also have Barnabas. And there's good evidence that there's a, a third James as well. Okay, so before we even get to the end of the Acts of the Apostles, we've already got 15 people who are called apostles. So we need, to admit, we need to understand that just because he wasn't one of the twelve doesn't diminish his stature in the slightest. Okay? We need to understand that. Secondly, where did St. Paul learn all that he learned about Christ? On the road to Damascus. When did he learn everything that he learned about Christ? On the road to Damascus. Something happened to him on that road to Damascus. It was part of his complete conversion experience. So that he shows up in Damascus and the people say, the one who used to be putting us to death is now fighting for us. Who taught St. Paul his theology? Jesus Christ did. Okay? That's um, another foundational understanding of St. Paul. Okay, So St. Paul gets converted on the road to Damascus. Uh, he lives in Jerusalem. He lives in Tarsus. He lives in Antioch. And then he hits the road on missionary journeys. And that's what we're going to talk about later on you know, in, in, our, in our upcoming classes. Paul has three trips, three missionary journeys. And they were in 46 to 48 A.D. 
49 to 52 A.D., and 53 to 58 A.D. Now, Paul must have been an absolutely powerful speaker. He must have been absolutely dynamic, because in his three missionary journeys, he becomes world famous. Word gets out that he's in Greece. People travel from Spain to listen to him. People cross over from Egypt to listen to him. Okay? Um, Paul gets to be so famous that uh, he causes such an uproar in Jerusalem that they have to have 200 armed guards with horses to protect him, to take him from Jerusalem to, uh, to Caesarea for his trial. Okay? Um, so Paul, Paul, Paul must have really, really been... Paul must have really, really been somebody. They said people were vowed not to eat or to sleep until after they had killed Paul. So Paul must have really, really caused an uproar. I heard uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury make a statement once in which he said, um, when St. Paul preached, it caused riots. When I preach, they serve me tea. Okay, so, so Paul... Um, He's, he's arrested in Jerusalem, he's tried in Caesarea, he appeals to Rome where he's imprisoned for two years, and during these journeys he writes 13 letters, one-third of the New Testament. All right? And these letters are um, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, uh, Philippians, Philemon, uh, Colossians, Ephesians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus. Okay? No one's quite sure what happens to Paul after he's let out of prison. Some people he kept on, say he kept on traveling. Some people say he went as far as Spain. The only thing we know for certain is that he gets imprisoned again. And the last thing that happens to him is he's martyred under the Emperor Nero in Rome. And if you want to know uh, why the, one of the reasons why the church is headed in Rome, it's partly because of Paul. The bloodshed of Peter and Paul consecrated the, the soil of the ancient Roman church. Okay? So Paul is... is uh, is martyred in Rome. The most important thing to understand about Paul, though, above all else, is that Paul is the missionary apostle to the Gentiles. Okay? Now, I'm going to talk about the uh, Hellenistic world and the diaspora in just a second. But Paul is the one who's sent to all of us, the hoi polloi. Okay? You can thank Paul um, for not eating kosher. You can thank Paul for bacon. You can thank Paul for bacon cheeseburgers. Right? Paul was the one who spread... Because until until St. Paul was commissioned, uh, they were just commissioned to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul was the one that went out to all the nations, and he became the universal savior. Jesus becomes the universal savior through the message of Paul. All right? um, you notice Paul, he always begins his letters, Grace and peace be to you in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's heard that before? Sound familiar? You know why he uses that phrase? When Greeks greet one another, they say, Kyrie, which means grace. When the angel Gabriel greeted um, the Virgin Mary, it's translated as Kyrie, Kyrie Maria, is what, it's, is what it said. When Greeks would greet one another, they'd say, Kyrie. When Jews would greet one another, they would say, Shalom. So when Paul greets people in his letters, he says, Kyrie, Kai, Shalom, grace and peace be to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So Paul is the one that brings the Hebrew God into the Greek and Roman world. Now just a quick little look at the world that St. Paul uh, uh, inhabited, and then a little bit of a look at the the content of the New Testament here. Okay? Um, Let's first look at the Hellenistic world. Okay? 
Look at the Hellenistic world. Hellenistic is just another way of saying the Greek world. And it all begins with Alexander the Great. All right? Alexander the Great, between uh, 336 and 323 B.C., 13 years, conquers more land faster than anybody else who's ever lived. Okay? He conquered Greece, Turkey, Egypt, Libya, Israel, Syria, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, and parts of India in 13 years. Okay? Now, Alexander the Great's dream is to rule them all in one Greek culture. And he actually starts to do it. But he dies. Okay? He dies. And his children pick up where he left off and they don't have the leadership skills to unite such a vast empire under one culture and it almost makes you wonder what would have happened if the influence of the Greek and the Roman world spread all the way to Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq you know part of the reason why the, the Roman civilization was where it was was because that's as far as Alexander the Great had been able to extend his unifying influence before he died. Imagine what might have happened if Alexander had lived longer. He might have had a Roman Empire stretching all the way to India. Who knows what, how that might affect you know, current geopolitics. Heaven alone knows. But it's an interesting thought. Half the Mediterranean world is following uh, the Greeks. Now then the Romans conquered the Greeks in 144 B.C., Okay? Romans just assimilate what the Greeks had. You'll notice a lot of similarities between Roman world and the Greek world. Uh, their architecture, their gods, you know, uh, Zeus and Jupiter, they're the same person, same god. Interesting little, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, study of names. Onomology. An interesting little uh, onomological fact if you take the word Zeus and you add the word father, and you say them together, it amalgamates into Jupiter. Zeus pater, Zeus pater, Zeus pater becomes Jupiter. So Zeus and Jupiter. It's, it's the same culture. Okay, Very, very very similar. The Greeks and the Romans. And what we understand happened here was, it was we call it the preparatio evangelii, the preparation for the gospel. So that this Greek reason and thought and this... Roman civilization with its roads, with its, with its uh, uh, infrastructure, made the spread of the gospel possible. That's kind of how a Christian view of history right there. We believe that it made the spread of the gospel possible. Uh, another thing to keep in mind that, you, that, that, uh, that um, Paul faced was diaspora Judaism. Right? Now, diaspora Judaism, you might kind of take this for granted, but it helps to know a little bit of the history Jews reached their height of civilization, wealth, power, and influence under David and Solomon. Okay, we're talking about 1,900, 1,000 to 900 BC thereabouts. Okay, um, David inherits Solomon inherits the kingdom of David. Solomon raises taxes through the roof, and the people don't like it, and it ends up weakening the kingdom. It ends up dividing the kingdom. So the one great kingdom of David and Solomon is divided into two kingdoms. A northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. The northern kingdom got conquered by the Assyrians, 721 B.C. The southern kingdom got conquered by the Babylonians, 586 B.C. And you can imagine when invading armies are coming in, you and your family get the heck out of Dodge. Right? 
You get up and you leave. You go somewhere, anywhere. And so what we had in the ancient world, before Paul began preaching, before Christ began preaching, is you've got Jews who fled these conquering armies to go and live in places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Alexandria and Corinth and Athens. Uh, all across the world, we call this the diaspora. Okay, The diaspora is the scattering. That's what the word means. Right? So this is the world that, 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 uh, that Paul inherits. Diaspora Judaism. And these are the people that the apostles were going out to preach. One of the images of St. Jude is a ship. One day we're going to have a St. Jude statue here. And I really want to have St. Jude with a ship. It's one of the images for St. Jude. St. Jude got on a ship. Where was St. Jude going on his ship? He's going to preach to Jews in the diaspora. They've been scattered for 700, 500, 600, 700 years. Okay? Because of invading armies, and they stayed there. Okay, So this is the world that Paul is, 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 is reaching out to. Now let's take a quick little look at uh, what we have in the New Testament, and just to wrap up this evening. A little bit of New Testament history. You might not know where the New Testament came from. It didn't drop out of the sky. Um, it kind of evolved uh, gradually. All right? We'll go over all the dates of the letters of Paul when we get to them, but let's look at the other books. Okay? Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have got their dates up here for their approximate dates of composition. Mark's probably the oldest, okay, followed by Matthew. Luke, as best we can understand, was written after Matthew and Mark, and John was written later. Okay? So all the Gospels, they're written between 65 and 90s or so AD. Okay? Acts of the Apostles follows Luke. Do you know that Acts of the Apostles is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke? It's literally, literally, it's the sequel. If you go to the Gospel of Luke and you read straight to the end, skip John, you'll write Acts of the Apostles. It continues as one story. In fact, the beginning of Acts of the Apostles references the fact that you've just finished reading Luke. In my last account, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus said and did. Now I'm going to write about the things that the Apostles said and did. Okay, so we've got Acts of the Apostles. Different letters that were written for, for, for to, to, to all the churches, Peter and James, our own namesake, Jude, um, at different times. How were these things decided that they would be included in the scriptures? Well, it took a little bit of time, but there are some things that they all have in common. Number one, Orthodox content. It taught the faith that the people who heard and knew the message of Jesus Christ recognized as being their own faith. This was not a foreign faith that was theirs. And you might hear of other writings like um, the, the, the Apostle of, what is it, the Gospel of Thomas. You've heard that kind of, you've heard of that? There was this uh, seminar in California called the Jesus Seminar, and they were suggesting now Thomas is a, a Gospel. No, it's not. It's not. Because the people of the original time recognized that it wasn't. It, it, it doesn't express an orthodox content for a lot of reasons, but I'm not going to get into that. Number two, it has a history being used in the liturgy. Christians would find these writings and read them at Mass for, for decades and decades and hundreds of years. Okay? It always was associated with an apostle and came from a reputable lo- location. There were no scriptural writings in which no one quite knew where they came from. or People would know that uh, Peter had written something or that Jude had written something and they would transcribe it. And the transcriptions are remarkably accurate. Who's heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? 
Okay, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, a little Bedouin shepherd boy in 1946 chased his goat around a corner of Kirbet Qumran, bound by the Dead Sea. And he entered into this cave in which he found these stone jars, opened up these stone jars, and he had these scrolls inside of them. He said, what the heck is this? He took them to his father. His father said, I don't know what those are. Let's take them into downtown Jericho. Took them into downtown Jericho. He says, oh, it looks like it's pretty old. Let's take it up to Jerusalem. Took it up to Jerusalem, and they said, these are ancient texts. And they looked at these ancient texts, and they studied them, and you know, there's huge hullabaloo all throughout the world. We found ancient texts of the Bible that are written in the time of Christ. Oh boy, now we're going to, you know, all these people with their little agendas. Now I'm going to prove my agenda. I've got an original text. Some other person with their little agenda. No, no, the text is going to prove my agenda. You know what the text proved? Proved that every time they copied any section of the scriptures, they had done it with absolute laser accuracy. What we've got is what they had. Nobody added or took anything away. And if they did, it got erased. Okay? That's what they showed. So, um, reputable location. And the church accepted them by around 400 A.D. There was actually a, a council of Carthage that put together uh, the, the list of the scriptures. But you know, it took about 400 years for all these things to get together. Um, now, there are some disputed letters of Paul out there. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. You ever heard of any disputed letters of Paul? You've heard of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. You ever heard of 3rd Corinthians or 4th Corinthians? There's some people who insist that they're out there. Paul references them in his letters to the Corinthians. He wrote 3rd and 4th Corinthians. They're out there somewhere. Why were they never found? Where are they? If someone found one in a dusty cave, would it count as scripture? No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. Because if it was important, like all the other ancient scriptures... People would have recognized it, copied it, and used it. Okay, um, so but we'll, we'll get into those other disputed letters of Paul. So uh, what we're going to do? Okay, we're going to gather next week, and we're actually going to start looking through the letters of Paul. And I'm going to tell you all about the Thessalonians next week. Okay, uh, to me, uh, the, the 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 main theme of Thessalonians is hope, Christian hope, something we can all use a heck of a lot of. And we are going to go over these sections of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Um, and I'm going to weave them together and tell you the story of the Thessalonians and tell you the story of the, uh, the two epistles to the Thessalonians. Okay? So, any questions about anything I said? Yep? Um, regarding the conversion of St. Paul, is there any evidence that Paul had any contact even indirectly with his contemporaries, Matthew, Mark, Oh, yes. There's plenty of evidence that Paul had uh, direct contact with his contemporaries. It's in Acts of the Apostles. Um, uh, You you could, in fact... um, um, So he knew what Christianity was about. Oh, of course. He was at... He was at... at, uh, Oh, he knew what Christianity was about. He thought it was blasphemy. Okay. Okay. Uh, Before his conversion, his contact with these people was very, very limited. They were running away from him because he was an authority trying to kill them. Uh, But afterwards, Luke, Luke is the gospel of Paul. Luke was a companion to St. Paul. And Acts has so much about Paul in it because Luke got his Christianity from Paul. Paul's really the authority behind Luke. Luke wasn't one of the twelve apostles either. Um, So we have plenty of evidence for it afterwards, but before, they, they were running away from him. But he had an idea of what it meant. He knew these Christians were claiming that this, that this Christos was Theos, 
uh, that Christ was God and he found it to be rank blasphemy. So, anything else? Yes. Um, Paul and Christ had never met, uh, to the best of our knowledge, while Christ was alive uh, before his resurrection. Um, we believe, of course, that the resurrected Christ is Christ, and they had quite a meeting on the road to Damascus. It really does come down to the road to Damascus. Not that we're aware of. Yeah, not that we're aware of. Would they have rubbed elbows? Likely. You know, they're from the same area. You know, they, 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 they lived in Jerusalem. It wasn't that big a place. Likely. Jesus might have even shot him a glance. Paul might have thought, what's he thinking? <laughs> you know, it's heaven alone knows. Anybody else? Yeah? Yes, knowledge leads to love. No, I meant I meant that knowledge leads to love as a generality. It's a universal truth. You fall in love with someone when you get to know them. And then when you get to know them, you want to know them better. And it makes you love them more. And so uh, what we the reason why I said that is when we study anything, we don't want to study it so that we can become inflated with our own knowledge. You know, uh, Pope Francis, he had a fascinating comment um, uh, about priests and actually laity, but it was really directed to priests uh, who don't live a life of sacrificial love. He says he says they end up becoming collectors of antiquities. So if you don't have love in your life, you can study this and you can sort of collect it like souvenir knowledge, and that doesn't help us because you know life's too short. So, yeah, knowledge leads to love. And, and, and so everything that I do, I'm not interested in making you scripture PhDs. Couldn't care less. But I hope that you become better disciples. Anybody else? Good enough for one day? Okay, end with a little prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end.